I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's Wednesday, the 15th of September, 1926, Quarter to five in the afternoon, and Philip Trefine and William Coulter are in the dock in Perth Supreme Court. For the past month, these two men have faced the longest trial in Western Australia's history, charged with the murder of Detective Inspector John Walsh near Kalgoorlie, and, by extension, the murder of his partner, Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman, whose mutilated remains were also found in the same abandoned mine shaft. The jury has deliberated for just over four hours, and now they're back. Trafine nervously wipes his hands. In the last few days of the trial, as their defence barrister, Arthur Haynes, made a marathon closing address, Trafine had visibly brightened at the prospect of being acquitted, at the jury believing his story that shooting the detectives had just been a dreadful accident. But during Haynes's epic seven-hour speech, Coulter had maintained his impassive demeanour, giving away no clue as to whether he thought the jury would believe that he hadn't been at the scene of the crime at all. And now, with their fates about to be revealed, Coulter is as calm and inscrutable as ever. Justice Thomas Draper's associate asked the foreman if the jury has agreed on its verdict as to the charges of willful murder. The foreman says they have. Philip Trefine and William Coulter are both guilty. But the foreman isn't done, and he adds this rider, quote, We wish to add, Your Honour, that we very much deplore the fact that Mr. Clark is not in the box too. The jury believed that Teddy Clark, the accomplice after the fact yet to be tried, the accomplice whose evidence has comprised the large part of the Crown's case, is actually as guilty of willful murder as these two men. Justice Draper tells the jury they've done their grave and painful duty well, and he sends them on their way. The associate asks the convicted men if there's any reason why they shouldn't be sentenced. Loudly, defiantly, William Coulter tells his honour, quote, 
You say I went out and shot Walsh. That is not correct. I was never at the plant and I am not guilty. Philip Trefane says, quote, I am innocent of the charge of willful murder. It was purely and simply an accident. That is all I have to say. Yet, as time will show, that isn't all he has to say. For the moment, he holds his tongue as Justice Draper puts on the black cap and sentences him and Coulter to death, to hang by their necks until they're dead. I'm Michael Adams, and this is the fifth and final part of the Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. Hours before the verdict, Arthur Haynes, ever voluble, had tried to have the last say. Before his honours closing address, he'd seen him in chambers and asked he emphasised to the jury that the onus of proof was on the Crown. And after the judge's summation, Haynes still wasn't satisfied. He asked in court that Justice Draper reiterate this to the jury. The judge cut him off, said they'd already discussed this and he'd made that point in his summation already. Haynes objected. His honour said it was noted. What followed was a testy exchange that culminated in the judge ordering the barrister to sit down as he sent the jury to deliberate the verdict. When they'd left the courtroom, Haynes was given permission to say his piece. The judge said if he agreed, he'd recall the jury and give them additional instruction. Haynes argued there was no corroboration to connect Coulter with the crime and that the reward might have affected Teddy Clark's credibility. The judge had heard this in the case and he refused to recall the jury, though he said he noted Haynes's objections. Now that sentence had been passed, Arthur Haynes wasn't giving up. He was, after all, a last-ditcher like his father, a legal defender who'd go to any lengths to win. Even if that meant aiming his rhetorical double-barreled shotgun at Justice Draper before the Chief Justice in the Criminal Court of Appeal. That's what he planned to do as Coulter and Drafine were taken back to Fremantle Jail under heavy escort. Meanwhile, Teddy Clark was kept in the Perth lockup. The Daily News reported, quote, Although no suggestion has been heard that Clark will be committed as an accessory, no doubt he will be held until the appeal is decided. A macabre question was now raised by the circumstance that had seen Coulter and Trafine sign over their life insurance policies to Haynes as security for legal costs. The simple surrender value of Coulter's policy was about £400, but if he died, the AMP Society was due to pay out his benefactor £4,000 plus any bonuses. So, if Coulter was hanged, would Haynes get a massive windfall? Simply adjusted for inflation, about $330,000 today. Insurance experts were puzzled, saying it would depend on the wording of the policy and the interpretation of a death on the gallows. Haynes was at pains to say if the worst did come to the worst, he'd simply deduct his legal fees and hand the balance to Mrs. Coulter. He told the Daily News, I don't want more than I'm entitled to. Soon after, it was reported that under English law, judicial execution wasn't covered by such policies, so it looked like the real benefactor would be the AMP Society. Trafine and Coulter's friends in Perth, in Fremantle and on the goldfields circulated petitions supporting their appeal. The police file shows that, in addition to their continued investigation of whether defence witnesses had been paid to perjure themselves, they also took a close interest in these petitions and whether the names and addresses were legitimate. Two weeks after the verdict, on Wednesday the 29th and Thursday the 30th of September, the Court of Criminal Appeal listened to Arthur Haynes as he argued for a new trial for Trafine and Coulter. 
The matter would be decided by Western Australia's Chief Justice Sir Robert McMillan and Justices Northmore and Burnside. Justice Draper didn't exercise his right to sit on the appeal and the condemned men also weren't present. Arthur Haynes set out his arguments point by point. 1. Coulter and Trafine had been convicted on the uncorroborated testimony of an accomplice or accessory. 2. Justice Draper had neglected and refused to direct the jury that corroboration was essential. 3. In regards to Coulter, Draper had misdirected the jury by saying the onus of proof was on him. 4. The judge hadn't directed the jury to lay the onus on the Crown. 5. The judge hadn't directed the jury that Trafine and Coulter were entitled to the benefit of the doubt. 6. The judge hadn't directed the jury towards important defence evidence. 7. The jury hadn't been directed to consider Clark's evidence in light of him standing to make money from the conviction. That was the £1,000 reward offered by the government. 8. Justice Draper's summing up had been unfair, unreasonable, misleading and partisan and biased. Now, you hold it right there. That was, in effect, what the Chief Justice told Haynes, saying he was summarily dismissing this argument and that he'd engaged in, quote, language not befitting any member of the legal profession. Haynes apologised. He realised he'd overstepped the mark. Haynes continued with his ninth and final point, which was that the verdict had gone against the evidence. On the second day of this hearing, Haynes walked the judges through the evidence with reference to a plan of the gold plant. He said the shooting had been an accident and such accidents could easily happen, as had been explained in the trial, with stories of other instances in which two or three people had been killed or injured by a single shotgun blast. In fact, just two days before the verdict, two fellows and a kangaroo had been hit with one shot. Haynes said that Clark's evidence had been contradicted by Trafine and by other witnesses. He read Clark's statements and testimony and showed how he'd lied about important details, such as his ridiculous claim that he hadn't known why Coulter had wanted the knife and saw from the hotel. Why, asked Justice Northam, was Haynes reading this? The barrister replied, quote, For this purpose, I am trying to sheet home to him that it was he who cut up the bodies. Clark, he said, had lied continually. The only evidence a murder had actually been committed and Coulter had been involved had come from Clark. Clark, the liar. This being the case, it was not safe to hang two men on the evidence of such a witness. As for Coulter, Haynes said he had testimony from 15 people, including Coulter himself, that said he'd never been out of Kalgoorlie at the times the murder and the body disposal were supposedly taking place. There was no earthly reason Coulter should be out at the gold plant, because that wasn't how their illicit gold operation had worked. He'd made his money from selling the gold, not from processing it. Haynes pointed out how Clark's testimony about the men's confession to him at the hotel had changed over time. So, by the trial, it included Pittman saying to Trafine, For God's sake, Phil, don't shoot. And Trafine responding, You bastard, you broke up my home, and now I've got you. Haynes argued that Clark, and by extension the Crown, had realised Clark's previous account had made it sound like a spur-of-the-moment shooting. So it had been altered, tailored, to fit the charges of willful murder. Haynes asked the judges if they believed it had happened like that, why hadn't Pittman reached for his revolver rather than pleading not to be shot? The answer was simple. Everything Clark had said was a lie. But Haynes, realising again the grave mistake he'd made earlier, concluded his address by saying it had not been his intention to say that Justice Draper was biased and that he regretted he'd given that impression. 
all up Haynes had spoken for six hours over the two days. The three judges adjourned for lunch and to consider. When they returned, the Chief Justice dealt first with the issue of Clark's evidence and corroboration, saying that Justice Draper's summing up had sufficiently instructed the jury regarding how they were to judge his testimony. As for the onus of proof, Astrophine had claimed it was an accidental shooting, it actually was up to him to prove this. Further, as Coulter had sheltered behind this story and provided an alibi for himself, it was again up to him to prove this was true. The Chief Justice said Judge Draper had correctly instructed the jury regarding the benefit of the doubt. He castigated Haynes for cherry-picking the judge's summation and said the jury had spent one month hearing evidence, and so they knew the case better than anyone before they'd arrived at their verdict. The Chief Justice said that Clark was a contemptible gold stealer, or worse, like Trafine and Coulter. But the jury had accepted he was at the hotel on the 28th and not at the gold plant. The Chief Justice found it difficult to understand why he'd make up a story of a murder if he'd originally been told it was an accident. In any event, the jury had full knowledge of Clark and his character, and while the case depended on him to a large extent, there had been other facts that corroborated his story. Clark may have lied to cover his greater involvement in disposing of the bodies. But it was also true that Trafine's story of an accidental shooting and Coulter's story of his alibi were very, very stale by the time they'd been presented. Had either man offered either story earlier, they may have gone far further towards them being acquitted. The Chief Justice concluded, quote, The jury, after full consideration of the whole case, were driven to the conclusion that Coulter was with Trafine and was therefore guilty with him of willful murder when they refused to accept the story of the accidental shooting. And I must say that I would have been surprised if any jury could have been found that did believe that story. In my opinion, the appeal of both these men should be dismissed and the application of both for leave to appeal on the facts should be dismissed. Justice Burnside said, I agree. Justice Northmore, I agree. Three to zero. There'd be no further appeal and no new trial. Trafine and Coulter's last hope now lay with Western Australia's Executive Council. It would do one of two things after considering the case. It would commute the death sentences, or it would set the date for their executions. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Petitions supporting the men now argued against capital punishment on principle. This usually won a large measure of public sympathy and even the favour of some editorial commentators. But the horror of these murders was so great columnists predicted the Executive Council would not be moved. The politicians met on Tuesday the 12th of October. By now, there were some 9,000 signatures on the petitions that Arthur Haynes had presented to the Council. He'd expected it would take the executive a few days to decide, but they made up their minds quickly. The law would follow its course on Monday the 25th of October. Trafine and Coulter were to hang. Hearing this news in Fremantle Jail, the usually calm Coulter reportedly collapsed while Trafine took it more stoically. 
Truth reported that Coulter had been visited by his son Jack, by a daughter and by his son-in-law. Trophine was still waiting on a son to arrive from the east. After the news, the men paced restlessly and smoked in their cells. Later that night, they'd calmed themselves enough, as Truth put it, for, quote, one of their last short sleeps before the long, long sleep likely to come so soon. The next day, both men seemed brighter and better because they'd heard their supporters weren't giving up. Rumour had it also that new facts were going to emerge in time for the executive to reconsider. More pressure was being brought to bear by unionists. About 800 members of the Fremantle Lumpers Union responded with a street protest. Their resolution said, quote, We believe that the infliction of capital punishment is a relic of barbarism, does not act as a deterrent to the taking of human life, and the trade union movement of Australia is opposed to capital punishment. We call upon organised labour throughout Australia to register a protest against the Labour government carrying out a sentence opposed to the accepted principles of the Labour movement, as expressed at the state congresses in 1910 and 1919. But the ALP state executive responded with a statement that, contrary to popular belief, the party's platform contained no provision for the continuation or the abolition of capital punishment. There was a demonstration outside Parliament. But inside, behind locked doors, the state's politicians ignored the protest and got on with other legislative business. There was some good news for Coulter and Trophine. The AMP Society had decided that because the men had taken out their insurance policies years earlier for the benefit of their wives and children, it wouldn't be sporting to deny them on a legal point and risk throwing the families into poverty. So, they'd be paid in full, with Haynes taking fees agreed by AMP and the balance going to their original beneficiaries. While Haynes was at Fremantle Jail explaining this to the men and getting the necessary approvals, a new rumour swept Perth. On Saturday the 16th of October, Truth had a front page headline that said, Will last minute information alter Executive Council's decision in Coulter Trophine case? The latest development it said was a sensation. True story said it was unable to say much more than it was in possession of certain information that could change everything. Quote, At this stage, we cannot say more for the weight of responsibility one way or the other is great. Justice must be done. The public can rest assured that not a minute will be lost in putting our information before the Minister for Justice. Just how vital was this new information? Quote, Truth again makes its position clear in the matter. While capital punishment is the law of the land, it would be a legal atrocity to break that law in this case unless added information alters the complexion of things. That is just the point. We must be terribly certain before the rope does its dread work. Truth really did have an amazing scoop that it was unable to publish. During the week, other papers got wind of the rumours, but they too were limited in what they could print. On Friday the 22nd of October, three days before the scheduled hanging, a daily news front page headline read, Kalgoorlie Crime, Sensational Rumour, Alleged New Statement. The article began, Has Trophine made a further statement? By now, Arthur Haynes had left Perth to spend a few days at Rockingham. Tracked down there by a daily news reporter, he said he didn't know of any statement that Trophine had made. Certainly the man had said nothing to him yesterday when he'd seen him. The news nevertheless said it was now beyond all doubt Trophine had made a statement and it was believed to be an admission that Clark had told the truth all along. What had happened, as Truth would later reveal, was this. 
While he'd been in lockup around the time of his sentencing, Trafina had run into a friend who was also behind bars on a minor matter. Trafina had told this man what had really happened. When this man was released, he'd made a beeline to the truth office and spilled. This new information had set the paper investigating, and that had taken them to the door of Jack Trafine. This 23-year-old, son of the condemned man, said he knew the real story too, but he'd sworn to his father that he'd remain silent. Quote, Dad won't spill, and he'll never forgive me if I do. But Truth's reporter got the truth out of him. Jack and Truth's editor went to see the Premier's secretary. They told the story as they believed it to be true. It was then arranged that Philip Trafine be re-interviewed in Fremantle Jail. Now, he made another statement. He said that while he and Clark sometimes used to go out to the plant together, Coulter almost always accompanied him. It had been on the 27th that the three of them had gone out there to start the gold treatment process. Very early the next morning, he and Coulter had gone back to the plant and had worked through till lunchtime, which was when Walsh and Pittman had come on them. Quote, Coulter was always saying that if they came, they would have to go. I saw them first, and I said to Coulter, here's Pittman. The gun was leaning on a bit of scrub near the plant. Coulter said, get the gun, and in the excitement, I picked up the gun, and Pittman sang out, don't shoot, Phil. Pittman put up his hand, and I fired at his hand. Mr. Walsh was further away to the right. I dropped the gun as Pittman was trying to get his revolver out of his pouch with his left hand. I did not mean or intend to kill either man. If I had, I could have done so as the gun was loaded in both barrels. Trafine's statement said that Pittman had come towards him and he'd run. Quote, I had not gone far when I heard another shot and I kept on running till I got to the road. Next, Coulter ran up and asked where there were more cartridges. Trafine told him in the car. Quote, I saw Pittman walking about but did not see Mr. Walsh. Trafine went further into the bush and soon after, quote, I heard another two or three shots, then all was quiet. I went over to the car and could see Mr. Walsh sitting down near some scrub and Pittman lying on the ground. Coulter told him Pittman was dead, but Walsh was still alive. Then Coulter went away with his revolver. Trafine had heard three more shots. Quote, he told me he had settled Walsh. Trafine said Coulter wanted him to help burn the bodies, but he refused. Coulter said they'd have to come back and cut them up and do it. Trafine again said no. Then they'd driven back to town and told Clark and the disposal had happened just like Clark said it had. Quote, As God Almighty is my judge, although I shot Pittman in the arm, I had no intention of taking his life, but Coulter was always urging me on. Trafine admitted that the evidence he'd given at the trial wasn't true and that Coulter had told him to take the blame in return for his family being looked after. Quote, he made up the story about it being an accident, and of course, for the sake of my dear children, I allowed myself to be made a tool of him by him. Trafine concluded, My God, I have suffered for my folly for keeping quiet, but I'd done it for the sake of my little ones who Coulter promised to keep. This statement was presented to Coulter and he was allowed to make a response. Any statement he gave now was crucial. Even at this late stage, he could save Trafine from the gallows. But he said, quote, I never thought anyone could be so bad to say a thing like this. I never killed either of these men. I do not know Trafine's motive for saying such a thing. The only thing I can think of is Trafine thinks Clark will bear him out in what he says, so he will be reprieved. Coulter had spoken with Trafine last night and that very morning, and Trafine had said nothing about this. All along, Trafine had said that Coulter was innocent, that he hadn't been there. 
Now, this story, Coulter said, was the greatest and most terrible disappointment of his entire life. He was innocent. Quote, I will leave it to the outside world to judge who is telling the truth. Clark and Trephine could save me if they would say what they both know. Hearing this, Trephine reportedly said, quote, If Coulter doesn't speak, he will go to the gallows with a lie on his lips. Truth published weekly, and it was too late to do anything with this late-breaking information. So, they shared it with the Sunday Times, while other papers also used their story without attribution. But the Executive Council, which had been kept apprised of this, gave no last-minute reprieve. It had been six months of he said, he lied, he said, he lied, he said, he lied. Trafine had now told so many different stories, there was no real reason to believe this one over any of the others. But was there reasonable doubt? At least to the extent that two men should have had their sentences commuted. It's one of the reasons we don't hang people anymore. A beautiful dawn broke over Fremantle Jail on Monday, the 25th of October. Behind the grimstone walls, Coulter and Trafine went to their fate just before 8 o'clock, as a crowd gathered outside. The jail superintendent, Mr Badger, asked the men if they had anything to say. Coulter said he was not there at the time of the murders and was not guilty. Trafine simply said he was innocent. He said, he said. They walked steadily to the scaffold, erected in a shed a few yards from their cells. Coulter had his minister, Trafine his priest. They ascended two wooden steps and stood on a wooden platform, which would drop away when bolts were removed by a lever in a box that looked like it belonged to a railway signal. The hangman, who'd been brought especially from New South Wales, was a short, stocky fellow in late middle age who was dressed in a slate-coloured suit. This man didn't wear a mask. There was no need. He wouldn't be seen again by these two or by any of the other witnesses present. The hangman dropped the white caps over their faces and adjusted the nooses around their necks. Neither Trephine nor Coulter was pinioned. They were asked if they had anything else to say. Coulter said nothing. He just waited impassively. Trephine raised his left hand and prayed continuously. The jail governor said, Executioner, do your duty. He did, and a second later, both men were swinging. The doctor present said death had been instantaneous. Truce reporter confirmed that this appeared to be the case. The paper would continue the line that Trephine had all along been protecting Coulter and had died for a crime he didn't commit. Nevertheless, it didn't criticise the executive or the judges and said the law of the land had been followed. But, quote, For heaven's sake, let us have done with hanging, which is not punishment but murder. All four dead, for gold. Two murdered detectives, two hanged gold traffickers. True said this was the end of one of the most poignant criminal episodes in Australia's history. Quote, And was gold worth it after all? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But the case wasn't quite done with. Teddy Clark remained. He wouldn't be tried as an accomplice or on any other charges. A few days after his mates were hanged, he walked out of the Perth lockup and into an interview with Truth. In their discussion, he denied having any greater part in disposing of the bodies. He said that, as per the conditions he'd laid out for Coulter, the man had not asked him to do more than drive him to the plant and lug some bags of bricks. Truth reporter asked, why did you not clear out? Did Coulter threaten you? Clark responded, quote, 
He did not threaten me, but naturally I felt that as he had committed one murder, my fate might be anything but secure if Coulter had any reasons to suspect that I might clear out. If the article proved anything, it was that, six months after the murders, Teddy Clark had at least arrived at a story that he could stick to. Truce reporters said that Clark had stood up well to a searching cross-examination and that he was an unfairly maligned man. It also noted that he was in a bad way financially. Clark sought to rectify that when, just as Arthur Haynes had predicted all along, in November 1926, he applied to the government for that £1,000 reward. But the state cabinet quickly denied him this blood money, with Chief Justice Macmillan ruling the same. Clark wasn't giving up, and he appealed to the full court the following year. In September 1927, the court was packed with lawyers, policemen, reporters and members of the public as Justice Burnside spent an hour handing down his decision. When the government posted the reward, an offer had been made for information that led to the arrest and conviction of the murderers. Without Clark, Coulter wouldn't have been arrested nor convicted. Trephine had already been arrested, but he wouldn't have been convicted either. Justice Burnside's opinion was that Clark was entitled to the money. Next came Justice Northmore, who dissented. That left it to Justice Draper, who'd presided over the trial. Justice Draper agreed that Clark, regardless of his motives, had known of the reward and, by his actions, had fulfilled its conditions. It was a two-to-one majority. Clark would receive the £1,000 reward, and moreover, the government would pay his legal costs for this appeal. Truth Newspaper thought the right thing had been done. Now, the government should let it drop. Appealing the matter to the High Court would cost the public more than the £1,000 reward. But the government wasn't letting it go. They appealed to the High Court. In December 1927, Acting Chief Justice Isaacs ruled that Clark had at first provided false information and he'd repeatedly said under oath that he wasn't testifying for the reward. He hadn't acted in the interest of the community but to clear himself of a murder charge and only because he'd been backed into a corner. Justice Isaacs reversed the Court of Appeal's decision. Clark wouldn't get a penny. Plus, he'd have to pay costs. This decision left Teddy Clark broke and broken. Due to his reputation, he'd lose any job he managed to get. Smith Weekly reported in March 1928, quote, With his wife and child, he drags out an existence near Boulder, being compelled by the buffetings of an adverse fate to depend upon a relative for shelter and food. They never venture abroad in daylight. The paper said there wasn't rancor against him specifically, but there also wasn't anything like sympathy on the goldfields. The Muswellbrook Chronicle reported that month, quote, The odour of the affair has clung around Clark like a miasma, and gradually he has been shunned by friends of other days. Of late, he has found it difficult to raise enough to keep body and soul together, and the latest news is that a movement is on foot to raise enough money to send him away from Western Australia, where he is not wanted. In December 1929, a memorial to Walsh and Pittman was erected outside the police barracks in James Street in Perth. Standing six feet tall, this marble monument's plinth had relief sculptures based on portraits of the detectives. The inscription reads, To the memory of Detective Inspector J.J. Walsh and Sergeant A.H. Pittman, who gave up their lives in the execution of their duty, 28th April 1926. Above the plinth stands a sculpture of justice. Her head's bowed, though she's not blindfolded. Justice stands respectful and sorrowful, having seen all. 
a scroll around the monument plaque is carved with three words. Justice, protection, sympathy. Since moved from its original location, the Walsh-Pittman Monument can today be seen at Lakeside Drive, Joondalup, outside the Western Australian Police Academy. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. This episode was made possible with the very kind assistance of Patreon supporters, whose contributions made it possible for me to access the 2,500-page original police file relating to this case. Whenever possible, I'll be using supporter contributions in this manner to make sure no stones left unturned in bringing you these stories. A big shout-out to recent supporters Melanie Olson, Patrice Manning, Margaret Crash and Sue Hanley. I'll be back with another Forgotten Australia episode before the end of the year. In the meantime, you can access all of 2021's bonus episodes by becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and that link is also in your show notes. So, for your bonus summer listening, you'll get access to the most recent show called To Sir With Hate, which is about the mysterious murder of a schoolteacher on the New South Wales South Coast in the 1920s. If you're into true crime from that period, another episode you'll like is Revolvers and Razors, about a Blue Mountains murder and its link to Sydney's infamous razor gangs. Then there's one called The Body in the Barwon, about a shocking 1950s underworld assassination in Geelong and its link to a bizarre beer-fueled World War II sabotage case. Then there's a show about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's wild spiritualist tour of Australia in 1920-1921 and an episode about a scandalous 1940 Sydney divorce case that brought down one of Australia's top homicide cops. All of these episodes are available right now and I'm adding new exclusive shows every month. Supporters can also hear my audiobook Australia's Sweetheart about our forgotten movie star Mary Maguire which is now nearing completion. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.